It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So if you can believe it, we are at episode 19 in this series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War One. And we haven't gotten that far into the story, and I know some of you could actually be a little disturbed that I'm still at the Battle of the Marne, which you would have thought quite a few times ago that I finished. Technically, I don't think I've ever declared who wins the Battle of the Marne, even though <clears throat> if you can follow good hints, you would already know the answer to that. And I'm going to give that away today, just in case you're wondering if you've been on the edge of your seat, maybe even going to Wikipedia trying to figure things out. Uh, but I will divulge uh, that. But there's a reason why I've sort of hung out in this territory for quite a long time, and that is because it's such a significant moment, not just in World War I, but of course in the past 100 years, because what is taking place here is actually going to impact uh, the world in which we live. And yet at the time, you wouldn't have guessed that. But what is going to happen because of the extension of the war, see, this war technically on paper should end right about now in the storyline. And yet it's going to continue, which is sort of a giveaway of what happens and who the victor and who the loser is in this war, because up to this point, Germany is trouncing France and Great Britain. And there's just really no hope. And it's just a matter of days, down to hours, down to minutes, and then something strange is going to enter in. And as we've discussed, uh, the enemy the Germans in this one, and I'm sorry for those of you that are German, I am German, uh, that you know, the Germans get painted up as the bad guy. They were the aggressor in World War I, and there's a lot of people that really like the Germans anyways because they're, a very, they're, they're not the Hitler rendition of the Germans, right? But they're the predecessor, and there still are some similarities, some similar qualities that you're going to see in World War II that when you stare at the World War I version, it's sometimes hard not to see a little Hitler in there, even though they weren't like that, but it's sort of hard because you can extrapolate it out and suddenly go guilty. And so, but they are sort of the classic bad guy in this and the fact that they're the aggressor in the war. They're hungry for territory. They have a craving for power, for recognition. They believe that they are right and everyone else is wrong and they need to convert the world to German thinking. And so, which I think tends to be sort of a weakness of the German mindset, is they have a tendency to think that they're right and everyone else is wrong. I've, I've joked about that in, in various ways as I've been going through that, because being German, there are certain things that I've recognized sort of in myself, you know, as I go through this story, and it's not necessarily things I want to recognize in myself as I go through. Sort of like what we call, you know, in the Ludi house, it's the, uh, the bumblebee uh, phenomenon, and that is uh, that different people respond to bees different. Uh, and you know, so when there's a bee zooming around or buzzing around the room, uh, I'm one of those guys that says, hey guys, just be still, and he doesn't, isn't interested in you, and he'll just move on. And I have two people in my family that will run around the room and, you know, and scream and do various things. And then I, you know, there's, and there's this one comedian that talks about the three, and there's the wafters, the stay-stillers, stay and the, uh, the total panickers. And, but one of the things this comedian says about uh, the stay-stillers, which I'm a stay-stiller, right? It's just like, they're not interested in us, just let them go, is that the stay-stillers are convinced that their way is correct. 
<laughs> and my family all looks at me. It's like, because I am. I mean, my dad was a stay stiller, and he's like teaching me from a young age, you know, how to deal with bees. They're not interested in you, but if you just stay still, they'll move on. And, you know, they only sting the people that are, you know, panicking and doing all that. Well, this comedian's convinced that the people that get stung are the stay stillers. But uh, that's, a, that's a different point. And, but it is interesting because as I've been studying Germany, I feel like my stay stiller quality, you know, it's like this is the way and everyone should be converted to the stay stiller uh, mode of handling a bumblebee. You know, I see that. It just sort of pokes its head up and I realize, is that a German quality or is that just a human thing? I don't know. But let's dive into part 19, National Road 2. And in the very beginning, that's not going to make a lot of sense, but this is the road from Paris, uh, and I think it's called N2 today in France, uh, but it's a road that heads up towards Belgium, but it's going to head straight towards the German line or von Kluck's uh, flank that is going to be exposed at this critical juncture in history. And so that's going to play a part, but it's a key passageway, a key thoroughfare. So the time to strike is at hand. Now, I've built up to this point, so if you've missed the previous episodes, it could be a little confusing of like, where are we, what's going on? However, uh, we have, German, Germany has moved on the aggression to start out World War I, but there's a lot that played into this, okay? It's not just that Germany one day woke up and decided to attack France. I mean, why would they do that in the first place? Well, there's a lot going on. And so it's not even just a gunshot in Sarajevo when Gavrilo Princip shoots uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That's, that is the, the moment that's going to be like the straw that breaks the camel's back. However, there was a lot of instability, and the Germans already had a day marked out. Not a day on the calendar, but a day that they were waiting for the excuse to move on. And they called it Der Tag. And in Der Tag, they had a plan, and it was called the Schlieffen Plan. And they would invade neutral Belgium, and then they would swing like a hammer down upon Paris and capture it within 39 days. And the reason for that is because France and Russia are allies. And as a result, if they're going to swing in and hit France, that's going to awaken Russia, and then Russia is going to hit them on their eastern side. Because Germany has a challenge geographically, and that is that on one side is the Russians, on the other side is France, two mortal enemies right now. And so as a result, if they're going to strike France, they believe, all their uh, military scientists are, have confirmed this and uh, deduced this, that Russia will take 40 days to be able to engage their military strength. And so if they can destroy and capture uh, the French and capture Paris by the 39th day, then they can swing their power to defend their eastern front against Russia. And you could say, well, what a brilliant plan. Well, I would like to encourage them not to have a plan in the first place. It's like, do we really need to expand our borders? Do we need, really need to, as Germans, prove that we are all that? And you see, they have a dignity issue. It's like a respect uh, issue that they feel. It's like they want the world to recognize them. And so we are you know, right close to the 39th day right now, where they're supposed to be capturing France. And everything is on track. And the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, which I've been calling William II, 
He's sort of a, an interesting character, uh, and I have multiple messages on him, so I can't really go into uh, him now, but he's in celebration mode. I mean, it is so obvious that the Germans are going to win this, and France and Great Britain are not in celebration mode. Whatever would be the antithesis of celebration mode, depression mode, you know, despair mode, that's what they're in. And so the fact that this war is going to turn is actually quite spectacular. If you were to really get in the shoes of what is taking place, it would be the equivalent of this nation giving itself suddenly to Jesus Christ and becoming you know, radically on fire you know, with a revival. That would be the flavor to what is about to take place. There's going to be a military revival that is going to take place in France. You have these despondent, discouraged soldiers that have been retreating for two weeks and suddenly they're going to be called on to turn and to go on the offensive. It's not very easy when you've had hardly any food, any sleep, you've been dejected for two weeks without a lot of hope in this world, and suddenly you're going to turn. So the time to strike is at hand, the risk of throwing everything into the fray. Well, France has no choice. They either throw everything into the fray or they lose their country to the Germans. So here's our map. This is zoomed in on our map of France, and you see that star up top, which is Paris, and that dotted line is von Kluck's first army that is swung down from Belgium, which you could see just the top of it, Belge, up there, and was supposed to take Paris, but at the last minute decided that, you know what, we shouldn't take Paris. What we should do is just encircle uh, the French armies, and so they've convinced themselves from some communiques they received about the retreating British and some other thoughts that they have that they are correct. There's an army called Manoree's army that they thought they decimated, that has found refuge in Paris right now. And so as they turn, Manoree's army, which wasn't decimated, is actually in a position to now strike their flank. And the British didn't leave. They're still there, which puts two armies actually directly uh, at the point where you would always dream of being in a war, and that is to outflank your opponent. And the Germans have put themselves in the situation where they're just sort of like, yeah, we'd like to fight you. We'd like to expose our flank to you. It's just like one of these weird situations in history. So there's our, you know, our strength points. We had Galliani in Paris, we had Manoree's army, and we have uh, the British Expeditionary Force. And then, boom, they're going to attack. And that's the Battle of the Marne that we've been setting up for. And technically, I think most of you feel like we've already fought it somewhere along the line. It's like, haven't we talked about this like 10 episodes? Maybe. Uh, it's true. Joseph Joffre is France's field marshal. And uh, he's the guy that reminds people of Santa Claus, but doesn't really behave like Santa Claus. Barbara Tuckman in the book The Guns of August says this, the decision was always his, speaking of Joseph Joffre. If it succeeded, his would be the glory. If it failed, he would be held responsible. In the problem now before him, the fate of France was at stake. During the past 30 days, the French army had failed in the great task for which it had been preparing for the past 30 years. Its last chance to save France, to prove her again the France of 1792, was now. So here's the famous quote from Joseph Joffre. Gentlemen, we will fight on the Marne. Don't you love these old-fashioned feelings? You know, when something's World War I, it's like black and white, and it just sort of feels extra you know, romantic, even though World War I was not very romantic. 
The miracle on the Marne is what it's known as. See, I, I know I'm giving away all sorts of stuff just by giving names like the miracle on the Marne. And I, I think you guys are probably pretty confident you know who won this. But I, remember, I haven't said who won it uh, yet. So the shocking turnaround of France. Barbara Tuckman says this, the Battle of the Marne, as all the world knows, uh, except for maybe the people in this room, ended in a German retreat. Boy, right there, I just gave the whole thing away. It's like right there on the screen. Between the Orc and the Grand Marin, in the four days that were left of their schedule, the Germans lost their bid for decisive victory and thereby their opportunity to win the war. Now, I don't want to give anything away of how the war ultimately ends either. However, it's sort of on the screen there as well. And this is their opportunity. They have it right in front of them. And that turn from taking Paris is the difference of them winning World War I and not. I mean, but there's also other factors. And that is that France, even though they are turning, really is not in a position to take advantage of this. There have to be certain factors that play in perfectly. The timing has to be precise for France to actually turn the tables here. And that's why people call it a miracle, because there's so many factors that would be impossible. If someone laid it out and said, well, what if von Kluck actually didn't take Paris? Well, then this would have to be the case, this would have to be the case, this would have to be the case, and this would have to be the case. And yet we stare at a situation where all those things line up and the French are like staring at themselves. The military leaders of the French are like, you've got to be kidding. This is all working. So close the Germans come to victory, so near the French to disaster, so great in the preceding days had been the astonished dismay of the world as it watched the relentless advance of the Germans and the retreat of the Allies on Paris that the battle that turned the tide came to be known as the miracle of the Marne. So we're going to get a little off topic today, and we're going to talk about the invention of an oatmeal day. I gave a sermon quite a few years ago called uh, an oatmeal day. I think that's what it was called. And it was a disciplinary technique that I was working on uh, in my home. And I decided that it had a, some pretty good spiritual principle to it. And so it was an entire message that came out. And probably to the chagrin of a few of my kids that it had to enjoy an oatmeal day. I didn't give names. Uh, it was just that, there, and I don't remember what would cause an oatmeal day. If it was like complaining about the food, you know, one of those types of things. It's like, okay, uh, if you complain about the food, then you get oatmeal for a day. And uh, having oatmeal for a day has a tremendous impact upon the human psyche. You see, oatmeal starts out, because some of you, you know, if you, if you got oatmeal for a day, we'd go, you know, that's probably going to be healthy. And I, I actually like oatmeal. But this is oatmeal without any milk or any type of, you know, you could have almond milk, uh, oat milk, you know, anything like that. Uh, none of that. And no sweetener. Okay, so suddenly you can say, well, that doesn't sound as good as I was thinking. That's right. Now, when it starts out and it first comes out of the pot, you know, it's still, it's nice and soft and, you know, it has that goopy oatmeal type of, uh, you know, feel to it. But then it goes back in the pot, you know, for the rest of uh, the morning. And then at lunch, you get another blob of it. And it's, it started to, you know, get a little gelatinous uh, by that time. <laughs> By dinner time, it's very gelatinous, and it's just like a big glob, and it just goes uh, into the bowl, and then you sort of have to chop it away or saw it, you know, saw off pieces. And by that time, you know, whoever was, you know, saying, oh, I love oatmeal is usually not saying that uh, the same way. 
And yet what happens is you appreciate something that you don't have. When it is removed from you, it has this inverse effect of causing you to cherish that which you no longer have. I mean, even cherishing good oatmeal uh, happens in that situation. Like you dream of the day, you know, when you had oatmeal in the morning when it was all nice and, you know, and warm and things like that. But it's a principle of what we could call fasting. And fasting, even though fasting is not an oatmeal day, I mean, God doesn't call us to oatmeal days in that sense, at the same time, he does, and it has a work in our soul in a similar fashion where it stirs us and awakens us to that which we do have, as opposed to focusing on what we don't have. When you're fasting, you could focus on what you don't have, and it will be a miserable fast. Or when you reach those moments of actually desiring something that would satisfy your palate, you can actually begin to then spiritually recognize what you do have in that moment instead of what you don't have. And that's part of the exercise that when you handle your fasting that way, it actually can cause you to thrive instead of be miserable the whole time. So I'm gonna call this the invention of an oatmeal day, a day set aside to reflect upon the loveliness of the Christ life. See, we have something tremendous, even though we don't have a very good meal in front of us, we, it does stimulate what we do have. And we have so much as believers. Even if we don't have a good meal in front of us, wow, do we have so much as believers. So here's how an oatmeal day works. I'll go through a little outline for you. Number one, you only eat oatmeal, unsweetened in all its boring glory, all day long, i.e. oatmeal breakfast, oatmeal midday snack, oatmeal lunch, oatmeal afternoon meal, oatmeal dinner, and if you can stomach it, oatmeal bedtime treat. Number two, in fasting the typical taste and savor of life, the notion is to cherish those good things which you have already been given in life and to stop begrudging that which you haven't yet grasped. So what an oatmeal day does is it's sort of a recalibration because we have a tendency to depend on certain things as a pleasure source, but when that is removed, you have a tendency to crave, but in that absence, to actually remind yourself. And it's the same thing Richard Wormbrandt would do when he would walk, he comes to the United States and he walks through a grocery store and he says, I can live without that. I have grace to live without that. I have grace to live without that. Similar principle. And there's nothing quite like this type of exercise in the soul to really sharpen you. So here's the third point. Every time you feel a craving for pleasure, the idea is to give thanks for what you do possess exercising all day long the gratitude muscle in your soul and appreciating afresh the good things God has given you. Because yeah, the meal in front of you might not be very satisfying, but nothing, there's nothing quite like an oatmeal day to help stimulate that gratitude muscle to say, but I do have this, but I do have this, but God, look what you have done for me here. But God, you have blessed me so much here. So that's what's gonna happen that's at least my way of describing it, to the French. They're going to not have an oatmeal day. They're going to have an oatmeal fortnight, since that sounds very Euro European to say it that way. That's not a term we use, but I, as far as I understand, that's a two-week period, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Because we don't use that term. Uh, but an oatmeal fortnight. Now, that's not totally 14 days, but it's close. And so I'm going to call that the oatmeal fortnight. And that's what they had. This was one challenging period of time. These guys are on retreat. The Germans are coming after them. They don't have food. They don't have sleep. And even their homes, there are, some of them have to walk through their own towns and see the Germans come in after them and ransack it. 
and they're losing everything that has been called their life. And that is a really hard thing to do, but there are things that they can be thankful for. You see, the Germans, in their thought that they were destroying the French military, there was one moment where Moltke had a panic moment, and it was right before the Battle of the Marne, and he realizes when in military history, when you are overwhelming an army and they're retreating, your signal of actually winning is that you're taking prisoners and people are giving up. Where are all our prisoners? We don't have any French prisoners. I mean, they had a few, but not to the degree that they should, which is causing Moltke to panic to think they still have their army. They still have their army. Has anyone considered this? They look like they're in you know, ruins, but if they still have their army in strength, that means... <gasps> and then the Battle of the Marne. In other words, there are things to be thankful for. And Joseph Joffre is the classic picture of the guy that's all happy in this moment, whether or not we'd call him happy, right? But he's like, we got him right where we want him. Look, we still have our strength. We're retreating in order, not in chaos. And we're gonna form a line and we're gonna strike back. And of course, the other military leaders are like, and when are we going to do that? And how are we going to do that? And of course, Joffre didn't know that von Kluck was going to turn his flank. And yet, Joffre is going to look very smart in history because he was right. They had him right where they wanted him. I don't think it was because Joffre should get credit for that turn of the flank. However, that's how it worked. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is speaking about this very retreat uh, in this very miserable period in France, I'm sure. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Even when you're in the great retreat, even when everything is being destroyed, even when you haven't eaten for two weeks, you haven't slept for two weeks, and even when your own town has been ransacked by the Germans, give thanks. You see, thanks is an action of the soul which is very, very critical for us to understand. You see, many of us have, have, have talked about rejoicing and the importance of the military mover, maneuver of rejoicing. Thanksgiving is a similar thing because it has a function, it has an attitude towards it, and it actually is like the turning of your military retreat into an offensive maneuver. The weakened nation of France, desperate for a change of direction. Uh, so the entire idea of revival really is good here, because this is exactly what they need. They need a revival. They need to turn and actually go in a different direction. They need to go on the offensive instead of the defensive, but how do you do that when you're in a retreat like this? So the strange secret of France's survival, I'm gonna call it yada yay and yada boo. So I, I haven't taught about this for quite a while, but there is a word in the Hebrew called yada, and it is a root verb, it's an action, and it is the root for something we know as thanksgiving. Okay, tauda is the word thanksgiving, However, the action or the movement is to yada. And so there's two ways that you can yada. You can yada yay, and you can yada boo, okay? So I need to teach you about that real quick here. So the word yada uh, is, it means two things simultaneously, which is why it's a tricky word. And there's a lot of Hebrew words that sort of fall into this unique zone where they could mean one thing and they could mean another, but the two meanings are like, whoa, that seems to be the opposite. They're not the opposite. They work together, but at first they seem to contradict. For instance, to lift up 
Oh, and it also means to throw down. It's like, uh, wait a minute here. Did, did I just hear you correctly? It means to lift up and throw down? How could that happen? Uh, it means to lift praise, to throw down error. It means to lift hands in worship, to throw down all that would stand in the way, to lift up a sacrifice, to throw down all hesitation, to lift up one's voice, to throw down all reticence. The reason I'm saying it means it, they, the two go together is to be able to lift up. Like, for instance, one of the illustrations that's most intimate for me is I remember when I was learning to worship and I didn't really feel comfortable like raising my hands or doing anything like that. I felt like everyone was looking at me. You ever have that uh, feeling like when you're in a worship time and you think that you, everyone is just like focused on you and like there's this big jumbotron and everyone's staring at you. And I don't know what that is, but I think it's a, it's a human thing, right? And so you become very self-conscious in a group when you're worshiping. I mean, I, it's so ridiculous. And, uh, and yet I remember having the thought that, you know, other people, you know, were raising their hands and I, I love Jesus and I want to express to Jesus, but I'm justifying why that is unnecessary because I didn't want to, you know, do that because I, I felt like weak, vulnerable if I did it. I, I don't know what, what, the, what the thing is, like self-conscious. And I remember someone came up to me. I never even saw their face. They whispered in my ear during a worship time. I had my eyes closed. And they said, uh, I just felt like I, I needed to tell you that God wants you to lift your hands to him. And, you know, and I'm just singing. And I heard it, right? But I didn't acknowledge it. I just sort of acted like, okay. But I really felt like God was speaking to me in that moment. Through whatever that was, it just whispered in my ear. I know it was a human. It wasn't just like some angel that came up to me and said that. However, I didn't really want to acknowledge it on one side of my life because what I needed to do is I needed to be able to lift up my hands. I needed to throw down something. I needed to throw down my reticence, my self-focus. Uh, you see, to be able to obey, you need to oftentimes toss something aside. It's called you know, to put off those weights that beset you, to throw them down so that you can be obedient. And so to lift your hands, which is the concept of thanksgiving, which is a strange one. It's like to lift up a sacrifice. It's to offer praise. And this idea is even to lift. It's interesting. And, it, you know, for the Hebrew mind, it makes sense. But for ours, it's not really the way we, we, we see it. And yet that's what it is. For me to do this in worship demands that I throw off my reticence, throw off my hesitation. I have to be aggressive towards one thing to throw it off to be obedient in another, to lift up. And this idea of yada is exactly that. If you're going to move forward in agreement with God, you have to throw off something that is hindering you. There is a weight that is besetting you. There is something that is holding you back. And if you really want to see the turn in the battle, if you really want to move forward with a yada yay, then you need to yada boo. You need to throw off and boo that part of your life that is attempting to snag you and to snare you and to keep you in that despair, discouraged, and depressed condition. France needs a revival. They need to turn. They need to freshly have strength to attack, but they need to throw something off first. So yada yay, which I'm going to call lifting up, and yada boo, which I'm going to call throwing down. 
So the throwing down, let's look at that first. This is exactly what Joffre is going to do, and it has never been done in all military history. At this time, what he is about to do so shocks not just France and the military system of France, but everyone that hears about it. They're like, you've got to be kidding. He is basically going to fire almost every general he has and replace them. Because almost every general that he has on the front that has been a part of the first uh, wave of World War I, they're bookish men. They come from the schools. They've actually never fought. They just you know, live in this mindset of you know, what is the right theory of war? What is the right approach? And he wants, get this, men of action. He wants men of dash is the term. And so he wants men that are ready to run towards the battle as opposed to men that are coming up with excuses why we need to run from it. Now, ironically, in this room, we have inside of each one of us bookish sort of generals, and we have men of dash inside of us. We have dashing generals. And inside of your own life, you have two things, and you need to throw off, you need to put off the bookish sort of general that's always coming up with an excuse of why you should retreat. And you need to actually nominate to that general position the dashing one to say, no, I'm moving forward. I'm obeying God right now. So Joffre's unprecedented removal of military generalship. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, Joffre felt it necessary to take every possible measure to avoid failure in the coming offensive, including his dismissals of the next two days. Joffre, in the first five weeks, stripped the French army of two army commanders, 10 corps commanders, and 38, or half the total number of division, divisional generals. New and mostly better men, including three future marshals, which is the head of all the military, like Joseph Joffre is right now, Falk, Patan and Frenchette d'Esprit, which I do not know how to say that. Uh, and of course, he's in this message multiple times, too. He's a key character in this story, which makes me feel very vulnerable right now. But they moved up to fill their places. If some injustices were committed, the army was improved. This is going to change the entire tenor. Up to this point, all of the French are just defeated. And they've always had the offensive spirit, but even the generals are becoming like disillusioned and they've lost their fight and they just want to you know, find a hiding place. And then suddenly these three men especially are going to be set at the front of the army and they're gonna turn the men and say, men, it's time to fight. And the attitude that is going to be infused in it, we can win this thing, it's going to start spreading through the ranks. It's a different attitude. It's a different mentality. But to get that men of dash attitude, they had to throw off the bookish men, the men that were fearful, the men that had the right theories of war but didn't have the right action towards it. Setting in place the men of dash. You know, when it's funny because if before I started studying the, the military history, I used to think of dashing men as that's a handsome man, okay? That would have been my description if you'd said, what does dashing mean? That means a very handsome man. Well, I'm not saying they can't be handsome. Uh, however, it actually means a man of action, a man that is willing to do the hard thing, a man that will go towards the battle, dash into it, into the fray like David does against Goliath. That's a dashing man, you know, of ruddy complexion. Uh, that's David I'm talking about. 
So not bookish men, but action men. Not cautious men, but daring men. There is a part of you that is holding you back from being able to turn and to hit the flank. It's there. It's exposed. The harvest is there. But you need to agree with the Spirit of God to turn and to actually strike the enemy in his flank. He's defeated. He's vulnerable right now. However, many of us were bookish in the fact that we have all the data and the facts and we know it would be really good to hit his flank and that's all wonderful, but however, could someone else do it? And what God is looking for is dashing men. I don't know if it's appropriate to say dashing women. That sounds awkward, right? That's like beautiful men. I just don't know if the two uh, words go together. The cross, the greatest picture of yada yay and yada boo. So the cross, the great yada yay, you could call it that. It is the ultimate picture of the lifting up. The lifting up of Jesus, the lifting up of the sacrifice, the lifting up of the righteous one. John 3, 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is what God wants to do. He wants to lift up this offering, which is the entire picture of thanksgiving in the Old Testament, is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. So there is a lifting up. However, in that lifting up, what needs to happen? We need to throw something down. So the cross, the great yada boo, the throwing down of the devil, the throwing down of the old man, the throwing down of sin. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Romans 6, 6, our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We got some serious yada booing going on here. Why? So we could turn this military unit around so that we could actually strike the enemy, so that the church could be actively engaged in the military movements of heaven. Colossians 2, 14 through 15, he has taken the handwriting of requirements that was against us and contrary to us out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He threw down so that he could lift up. And it's both happening simultaneously. In other words, when you are putting off those weights that are besetting you from running this race well, you're throwing down so that you can lift up. You are engaged in the same thing. It's like repent and believe. It's the two movements that go together to make up the revival of the human soul. Winning at the Marne, it demands two key things. Number one, the dash of men. Now for us to win at the Marne and to see this battle changed, it was the dash of the man, Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting to call Jesus a dashing man, a dashing general? Oh yeah, yeah Jesus is a very dashing uh, general. He was. He literally sprinted to battle just like David. Of course, it doesn't look like a sprint when you're hanging uh, on two pieces of wood, but that's what he's doing. He's aggressively going after the enemy. He could have ran in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, he submits himself. He turned himself over. He gave himself into the hands of sinners. He is like actively engaged in hitting the flank. He is going right at it. Talk about audacity. Talk about daring. He's turning himself. I mean, son of God, literally giving himself into the hands of sinners, appearing weak, being, submitting himself to the scourging, to mockery, to the ripping out of his beard, the spittle in the, in the cheek, the crown of thorns, 
And he's literally going to allow men to nail him to a, a, to a tree. And the whole while, he's tearing down. He's dismantling the powers of hell. Extraordinary picture. The dash of men is needed. And the same thing is true in the church. For there to be a turnaround, we need the dashing man to enter into us. And we need him to do some dashing work in us. We need him. Now what he does, he doesn't force us to dash, but he compels us and he shows us that which is standing in the way of our dash, our reticence. He shows us the excuses. He shows us the justifications and he puts his finger on them. And he says, I need that to be thrown down so that you can run. It's like that kink in the hose that I mention a lot, that there is, there is water that, does, that is supposed to come out of that hose and it's supposed to supply life, right? However, you know, just like a little drip coming out, it's like, what's wrong? We all know that that means there's a kink. And God is going to touch the kinks in our lives so that we can dash, so that we can move towards that flank, so that we can actually accomplish his purposes in this generation. So what is needed is the dash of men in this story. And I wish I could say uh, this guy's name a little more Frenchish, uh, but Frenchit d'esprit. How's that? For those of you that speak French, oh, you know, I got a sort of a mediocre, but I think it's just how I go. <laughs> I think when I add sounds like that, it just sounds more French. <laughs> so this is, he's going to take over for General Len Rezik, okay? Now, I didn't go into Len Rezik, even though that was a hard one for me to remove, because his storyline as a French general is very interesting. But you can look that up yourself. I just I didn't have time to go into it. I mean, there's so many things I could go into. There's a lot of people in this war, millions on both sides. Could you imagine if I go into millions of individual people? So he is going to step in, and there's going to be a call that comes in. No one knows that he's taking command. I mean, all these generals are being replaced. And these are famous generals. Len Rezik, one of the most famous men in all of France, is going to be fired by Joffre because, you know, he's always arguing and always questioning. And so it's like, out! And in comes... Uh, <clears throat> d'esprit. Uh, and so the, a phone call comes in and this other general is saying, uh, we need to retreat. We're not ready to fight. You know, I don't know what you guys are talking about. You know, we can't just turn and fight. And then this is his first action as a general. Hello. Oh, that was my French. I, I probably shouldn't even try and sound, <laughs> sound French. Hello. This is General d'esprit. I have taken over command of the fifth army. There is to be no more discussion. You will march, march, or drop dead. <laughs> that's how he starts. Oh, it, oh okay. That's what, that's what Joffre is putting in. He's putting in men of dash. We're, we're going to hit the Germans, and we're going to change this war. This is all turning now. You see, this isn't the attitude of the Spirit of God you know, in, the, in that sense. It's not dark like that. But there is a turn, and it's like, we are going forward, guys. There is an exhortation to our soul. God is not trying to coddle us. He wants to use us in a mighty way. And actually, we are so much more happy, so much more fulfilled when we are in agreement with his movement as opposed to in the great retreat, marching away. Ferdinand Falk says this in the response to, uh, are you ready? Can you get your men? Because he was just put as a general uh, too. Are, are you ready? Can you do this? Ready to attack. That was his simple response, ready to attack. Now, we would recognize it more like, ready to attack, sir. But it's just, ready to attack. 
Is that your soul when you're asked? It's like, yes, of course I'm ready. Of course I'm ready. I'm always ready. That's how we function as Christians, isn't it? We're always ready to turn. When our commander-in-chief says, strike now, of course, that's what we're going to do. Number two, so we need two things. We need the dash of men and we need the dash of, clear throat, taxis. This is one of the, many people that have studied World War I, this is like one of their favorite things that happened in World War I. This and the, you know, the uh, 1914 Christmas uh, truce, which is a whole fun story in and of itself. But there's not a lot of things that are fun in World War I. And this is one of the stories that's actually sort of fun. Remember, the darkness that is hovering over this situation. All Paris feels like it's just about to be struck. And then suddenly, Kluck turns his flank and everything changes. And you can sort of start to feel this buzz of electric excitement that starts to surge through the soldiers, but not just the soldiers, the people of Paris that are like totally sitting ducks. And there's this whole taxi cab system. I guess it was fairly elaborate, because when you think about 1914, you don't, I mean, you're even wondering if there are any automobiles. There were automobiles, but they were relatively new, and they were mainly used as taxis. And it was the wealthy people that could afford this. And so most common people had never been in a taxi. And let me say it this way. Most of the soldiers in France had never been in a taxi. And how are they going to get this army of Manorie to the front to go into that flank when we're stuck in Paris? How do we get them from here to there in time before von Kluck realizes that we have this power? And so, well, uh, I think you can guess since I've already sort of hinted at it, but let's go into the story. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, Manorie's attack on the German flank and von Kluck's turnabout to meet it opened a gap between the German first and second armies. The issue of the battle depended on whether the Germans could succeed in crushing the two wings, Manorie and Folk, before Franchette des Esperes and the British succeeded in exploiting the gap and pushing through the German center. Manorie, when almost defeated by Kluck, was reinforced by the Fourth Corps, of whom 6,000 detraining in Paris were rushed to the front by Gallieni in taxis and managed to hold his ground. This is an extraordinary story. So they're going to literally take the entire taxi system of Paris and turn it into a military transport system. The world remembers the battle ever since by the taxis. A hundred of them were already in the service of the military government of Paris, with 500 more, each carrying five soldiers and making the 60-kilometer trip to the Orc twice. General Clergueret figured he could transport 6,000 troops to the hard-pressed front. The order was issued at 1 p.m., the hour for departure fixed for 6 p.m., police passed the word to the taxis in the streets. Enthusiastically, the chauffeurs emptied out their passengers, explaining proudly that they had to go to the battle. (laughs) Returning to their garages for gas, they were ordered to the place of assembly where at the given time all 600 were lined up in perfect order. Gallieni called to inspect them, though rarely demonstrative, was enchanted. And I'm not going to try and say what he said in French, lest I make it even worse than I already have today. But this is what he said. Well, here is at least something out of the ordinary, he cried. Each with its burden of soldiers, with trucks, buses, and assorted vehicles added to the train, the taxis drove off as evening fell, the last gallantry of 1914, the last crusade of the old world. And what you see 
in the Battle of the Marne is a change. It's already been a change because just World War I up to this point is different than any war up to this point. Never have you had millions hitting millions on the battlefield. And, you know, artillery shells like we have, machine gun fire, that's all new. But up to this point, it's been a war of movement, which is if you study ancient history up until this point, it's always fighting, you know, running into the battle. And, they, you know, that's why battles last a day, two days. But they don't last months, let alone years. And we're going to go from a war of movement to a war of entrenchment, where everyone's going to dig their trenches and it's literally going to stall this for four years. And as I said a few days ago, it's going to gobble up lives in the tens of millions. It is one of the saddest stories. When my desire for it is not to just share sadness in it. And so hopefully you've already recognized my goal in this is not to show bloodshed. It's to actually inspire us in how we fight our battles. And even in the darkest moments, that we know as Christians how to live and how to expect our God to move and act and work. National Road 2. It's the avenue of victory, but it needs men of dash and taxis available to risk everything. So all of these taxis are going to head out on National Road 2. And that is their avenue to the battle. And in a strange sense, we have a National Road 2 that has been opened to us. Von Kluck has turned his flank to us, and National Road 2 goes right straight into it. And it's a way that was prepared for us in and through the shed blood of Jesus. It is the avenue of victory. In the Garden of Eden, we see that there were two trees. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was a tree of life. And why Adam and Eve chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life is quite bewildering, right? They were not prohibited from eating the tree of life, and yet they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Boy, doesn't that sound like us? And yet, so that we could have a hope of salvation, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, lest they eat of the tree of life, and as I always like to say, stay that way forever. And so as a result, the way to the tree of life was blocked with cherubim with flaming swords. And so the way to life was blocked. And yet, what has Jesus done? He has created the way. He has opened up the way. He has made a way, and that way is, ironically, through a tree. It's a tree of life, known as the cross. It's the great yada yay, the great yada boo where you must throw down your old. You must put off the old man and put on a new. And when you do that, and when you allow, if you're a taxi driver in Paris at this time, could you imagine what it would feel like if you were going to head out towards the war as opposed to just hide? I mean, first of all, there's no guarantee that you're going to be paid anything for this, right? You're just like being requisitioned. It's like, I need your taxi now. It's, it's life and death. And so you're a taxi driver. Now, I, I don't know that every taxi driver celebrated this. I, I can't speak for all the taxi drivers. I just know a lot of them thought it was really cool that they could participate in the rescue of France. And for me, I would like to be like that. You know, we sort of all have a taxi. And God's like, I really need to get this grace, this good news into that battlefront. And we're like, but God, I'm only a taxi. 
I'm not really much of a military instrument. And you'd be right, and yet God has requisitioned you to use you to bring his truth to the front, to bring his strength where it needs to go right now. And that way is National Road 2. Isn't that cool? So there is Von Kluck's dotted line, and now I'm going to show National Road 2. It cuts straight through it. Now, if you squint and look at it just right, it's sort of a cross. See? There's a nice little twist to the finish here. But that is the way. It is the way to the victory that we all have right now. And if we would heed the commission that we have to take the soldiers, in this case, the grace of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, where he is said to take it, he says, I want you to go straight into Von Kluck's line. That isn't exactly how the Great Commission translates, right? But it's very similar. Because who in their right mind wants to go towards that? Because up until this point, Von Kluck and the Germans have always been superior on the battlefield. But something has changed. There was a turn. There was a throwing down, and there was a lifting up. And because of that throwing down and that lifting up, we now are on the offensive. And God's saying, I need your taxi. I set you in Paris right now in history so that you could be deployed. But like, like right towards von Kluck. You see, if your experience is defeat at the hands of the Germans, then I can understand why you'd be a little tremulous. However, there's nothing quite like 12 days of retreat, a oatmeal fortnight to speak to the, the language of the soul to say, I want a different life. I cannot live this way any longer. You see, sin eats away at you, and that's why the gospel is such good news. Because you can't in your own strength turn this thing. You can't force Kluke to turn. Something else turned Kluke. And that something else in the spiritual sense is the work of Jesus Christ. And as a result, the victory is there. We just need to move in agreement with it. And we need to yield to what God has for us. And just as Jesus threw down and lifted up, each of us needs to agree with the Spirit of God in our life to throw off the weights that are besetting us, the excuses that we have that pop into our head of why I'm not the best person to strike Kluke's flank. Could someone else do that? Why do I need to do it? I'm just a taxi driver. You were just a taxi driver, but now you're a redeemed one with a purpose and a calling to carry the grace of God right where it needs to be right now in the hour of greatest need. There is a great harvest, and yet God is looking for taxi cabs to be raised up so that they too could carry the power and the might of Jesus Christ to the battlefront. Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Isn't that interesting that he needs to throw down something, which is himself in this case, to pick up his assignment? He needs to, in a sense, show thanksgiving in and through his very action of obedience. So I have an adapted version of that to finish up this message. 
Then Jesus said to his soldiers, if anyone desires to win this battle, let him yield his taxi to the service of the Lord and allow the grace of God to jump aboard and follow me down National Road 2 to victory. Isn't that fun? That was adapted, by the way. Anyone hearing this via podcast is, is that in Scripture? I don't know if I've ever heard that. (laughs) Father, we have reticence and we acknowledge that. We have excuses. We have justifications. We have rationalizations. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch those. And the great galleony of the new Jerusalem that we are citizens of, Lord, would speak clearly to us and that we would hear the requisitioning of our taxi afresh and that we would go to you to be fueled up for this grand task of carrying the grace of God to the front lines. Lord, we say thank you for the privilege. Lord, many of us have tasted the blandness of not being in agreement with your purpose. We are not meant to run away from the battle. It's the gates of hell that will not prevail against us, and that's an offensive maneuver. The right flank of von Kluck will not prevail. And Lord, I just pray that you would prepare us and you would steer us in the direction of victory today. Lord, as individuals and as a corporate body and as a nation, Lord Jesus, we just desire your life. We desire a reviving of our military ranks. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.